You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. So how's your day so far? Huh? Good? Hey? We have a seminar cut in two pieces. Uh, half of it tonight, uh, half of it tomorrow, or a fourth of it tonight and three-fourths of it tomorrow if I get behind, or half of it tonight, one-fourth of it tomorrow, one-fourth of it never, which is why giving you a handout's a real bad idea, but... It's happened, and we're going to be talking about selling, the part that marketing leads to, and um, I have a few sort of preface remarks. Um, I, you will be hard-pressed to find, I think. Now, there are some people in the room, not many, who have been um, killing what they eat and eating what they kill through selling longer than I have, uh, but not many. And, uh, and I've sold just about every which way that you can sell. Um, cold on the phone, knock on the door. You don't see much true door-to-door anymore, except in small towns in the South. Um, but, you know, at one time, it was a big thing in America. Now all kinds of communities have no soliciting signs up, and you've got to go get a permit and all that. But, so door-to-door, um, in the kitchen in the living room on the floor, uh, in the boardroom, one to a few, five, six, seven people in an audience, one to many, 5,000, 6,000, 10,000, 20,000 in an audience. Um, only difference, by the way, is, you know, is the zeros. The Tupperware party is a Tupperware party, regardless of how many people are there, uh, as we understand when we sell on home shopping in QVC, which I have not done personally, but I've taken clients there and, uh, and worked with them to get them uh, altered from awful to good, uh, to good enough to stay. Um, selling, of course, by media. Copywriting is, as Albert swiped from somebody from decades before him, but gets quoted most commonly for salesmanship in print. Um, really, most of what we do today is salesmanship in media. Um, and so selling by infomercial, selling by radio commercial, selling by online video, it's all just salesmanship by media instead of salesmanship by manual labor. And as an aside, it's important not to think it is anything but that. Every time there's a quote, quote, new media, a bunch of people think that it is now something entirely different than everything that has come before instead of just another media and all media for our purposes, is a sales vehicle. That's what it is. And by the way, if it doesn't sell, um, it doesn't earn its existence. So um, if you want to keep that in mind, see, it really doesn't matter how many people watch your YouTube video. If you can't prove it's selling anything, not perhaps directly, but by leading people somewhere where something is sold to them and they buy it, then it's very, very difficult uh, to get rich on views um, and on visitors. And so uh, one of the things you discover pretty quick when you are actually selling in the living room on the floor with the screaming baby and the fart farting dog or you're in the kitchen or you're in the boardroom with the screaming CEO and the farting dog, doesn't make any difference. Um, one of the things that you learn is if it's not selling, you change it, and if it is selling, you keep it, but the only thing that matters is what sells. So 
25 years or so, I made my first dollar as an adult selling. I imagine I'll make my last dollar before they close the lid selling. Um, um, 25 years at it officially is a long time. Um, and um, I still like selling. Um, and I think great salespeople like it. Um, they may like me, no longer like all the work that leads up to it. And I never did like the prospecting stuff that leads up to it. Um, they may not like the fulfillment part of delivering whatever it is they sell after they sell, but hey, getting the deal signed, getting the contract closed, um, putting the money in the bank, and uh, knowing that you got that right and you made a sale, that's still an exciting thing. Um, there are two basic schools of thought about selling. So pretty much everything, if you go out and get every book, every course, you find pretty much every trainer, um, you're going to find that they divide sort of into two schools of thought about selling. The most common is, the old school is, essentially that it is a numbers game. And the way that you increase your income by selling is by talking to more people, uh, getting more sales opportunities, and making more sales presentations. And that school of thought says that it is, it's easier to start selling to whoever's in front of you, whether they have any interest or not, than it is to figure out how to only get in front of interested people. So this school of thought is, is it's all about numbers. And attached to this school of thought is the idea that the deviance in the numbers up and down, how well you do, how poorly you do, is really all about you and not anything else. So the famous W. Clement Stone quote, so how many, how many of you in here have no idea who W. Clement Stone is? I'm sort of doing curiosity polling for myself. Well, not too bad. Okay, so if you go Google him, you'll find out. He's attached to Napoleon Hill, and in the Depression, he built the largest direct sales force in the insurance industry right in the Depression, door, door knockers. So Stone, uh, has a quote, many people are familiar with it, that says, the sale is contingent upon the attitude of the salesperson, not the attitude of the prospect. I'll, I'll say it again. The sale is contingent upon the attitude of the salesperson, not the attitude of the prospect. And there's some truth in it. Um, but So he tells this story, um, love to tell this story, Clem's dead now, but when he was alive, he loved to tell this story. It lives on in his book uh, about the insurance salesman in the doldrums in a terrible slump, um, just depressed and, you know, nothing's going right. And so he comes to Stone's office for help. Stone knowing in advance that he's coming, bringing this dire problem and depression with him. And Stone tells him he's got his problem solved and he hands him a list of names that Stone has made up by hand and says, these are really hot prospects for insurance. Don't tell anybody else in the organization I gave them to you. And you can go call on them and you can use my name to whatever extent you wish to use my name when you go call on them. And so the failing salesperson, the struggling salesperson runs out, calls on these people. Uh, I'm telling the story now less elegantly than Clem Ward and quicker and sells a crap load of insurance and his life is saved and, you know, now, the trick to the whole thing, of course, is that 
Clem just picked random names out of a business directory and wrote them down on a piece of paper. Uh, he had no relationship with them whatsoever. Uh, and there's no way of knowing whether any of them knew him by name, didn't know him by name. So using his name with them may or may not have been useful, thereby proving the thesis that the sale is contingent upon the attitude of the salesperson, not the attitude of the prospect. Now this is a charming motivational story if you are trying to motivate salespeople into making more calls, uh, talking to more people, giving more presentations indiscriminately with no selection involved, uh, and that somehow if you just think about it differently, you will get better results. So it's a charming motivational story, and if you happen to be a sales manager stuck in a role where you have to get people to go make calls, it's a useful motivational story, but it's about 50% bullcrap. Okay? So the true part of it is that yes, the attitude of the salesperson matters a great deal. Okay? The two false parts of the story, so first of all, it's very difficult for any salesperson to maintain a good attitude, however you wish to define that, for any length of time if in fact they are spending all their time trying to sell to people who can't buy, won't buy, are poorly qualified to buy, and are unproductive to be in front of. Okay? There's only so many motivational CDs in the world. And eventually that guy will use them all up and that will be the end of that. The second false part of the story is that the sale really is only partially contingent upon the attitude of the salesperson. It is partially contingent upon the attitude of the consumer. It is partially contingent upon the ability of the consumer. And so who the prospect that the salesperson is in front of, I happen to think, is extremely important. And now those of you that don't sell and are stuck in the room anyway because there was no place else to go tonight that you hadn't already paid for, you can, you can move marketing into that in its place because remember, all media is salesmanship multiplied. So the same thing is true if we're putting up online video presentation in front of people, it's the salesman. Okay? And only part of the sale is contingent upon its attitude and aptitude and its message. Part of it is contingent upon who's looking at it. Okay? So to deny the role of the prospect in this process is really quite foolish. Okay? So now there's a second school of thought about selling. The second school of thought about selling is that uh, it's one I've advanced, it's one I've championed. So the second school of thought is that you try and be selective. So you actually invest time, energy, effort, thought, money if necessary into getting in front of better qualified prospects. Right? So if you employ so the argument from a, from a self-management standpoint or a sales management standpoint, as I've always advanced it is, if you own a hospital and you employ a really top cardiac doc, uh, what do you want him doing? Do you want him going out giving free talks at garden clubs, prospecting for people who might need a heart operation? Do you want him stuffing brochures and envelopes to send out to find people who might need a heart operation? Do you want him taking phone calls from people who may or may not need a heart operation? No, you want him cutting. 
You want him in the operatory every minute that he can be in the operatory doing heart surgery because that's his highest and best competency and therefore the most valuable thing we can have him doing. So the same thing's true of a salesperson. If you really have a good one, or you really are a good one, what do you want that time spent? You want it spent selling. You don't want it spent prospecting. You don't want it spent struggling to get in front of somebody to sell. You don't want, you want it spent selling, and better yet, selling to someone who can and will buy. So the second school of selling says, let's take a more sensible, balanced approach Let's not rely purely on the attitude of the salesperson and raw numbers. Let's inject some discrimination, some selection, some strategy early in the process so that we use the actual salesperson and sales event more productively. So those are the two schools of thought about selling. You'll find 99% of everything fits into. Now, when it comes to closing, in the first school of thought of selling, the prevalent belief about closing is you got to close, and you got to close hard, and you got to be able to close people who don't want to be closed in any way, shape, or form. Right? And so you should be able to sell the proverbial ice maker to Eskimos right? and close so hard they buy two. Right? And so our saying about that is, and so my affirmation about that is, is I can get a check out of a rock. Okay? Um, and I can. Great salespeople can. So, like, if Legrand's in the room, I thought I saw him, if Ron's in the room, I've always said, you could put Ron up on a cardboard box at a bus station and, uh, with 12 people waiting for a bus, and he's going to have eight of them into a $5,000 coaching program on how to get rich in real estate before they get on a bus. He is that good. Okay? And by the way, the better you are at that, the more likely you are to default to it and have everything leading up to it poorly organized and executed because you have that power that you may default to. So in the first school of thought about selling, because it is all about selling to people who aren't interested and somehow forcing them to give you money anyway, closing plays an enormous role. In the second school of thought about selling, most people who talk about that school of thought about selling and teach that school about, of selling downplay the role of closing because, theoretically, it shouldn't be necessary. If you've properly selected prospects, what you're offering is well-matched, you do everything else right, your marketing lead-up was right, your presentation was right, you're in the right place with the right person at the right time, you shouldn't have to close, they should buy. So you don't need to know 52 different ways to close, and you don't need to hard close, and so forth. Right? There's a third school of thought about selling that is, I think, uniquely mine. And it is, because it is mine, in conflict with itself. Right? So, um, so, my school of thought about selling has two sort of fundamentals having to do with closing. So number one is, if you have to hard close a sale, you have screwed up something leading up to the close. That's number one. Number two is, you should close a sale brilliantly, aggressively, firmly, with every closing tactic and skill known to man every single time. Now those appear to be in conflict with each other. Right? They're not. Right? They appear to be, but really they are in harmony, and here's why. 
if we do everything right leading up to the sales event. So we have a good selection process, we're discriminatory, we have good marketing, we prepare the prospect properly, we are good, we have a great presentation, well matched with the prospect, we're in front of somebody who can buy, should buy, has the capability to buy, and has some reason to buy now. All of that's right, we actually should have a 100% close rate. Right? And virtually no one does, and it's because, in most cases, now, when they get to that point of great opportunity, they don't close hard. And they let a bunch of them, who should not have got away, get away. So really, the two things go together in harmony, despite the fact that they appear to be in conflict. Now, here's where we are today. Where we are today is there's not a lot of selling going on. First of all, there's a bunch of people who think they're selling, but they either forgot, okay, because this is the effect of the Reagan-Clinton economy. Mm -hmm. We've had more than a decade with tiny little dips of money basically running uphill. Okay? People spending money because three things were happening. Their incomes were going up. More importantly, their available credit was going up. So how many of you, oh, I don't know, in the past six months or so, have had a credit limit on your credit card arbitrarily reduced? No bad behavior on your part, nothing. They just decided to reduce your limit, right? Raise your hands. Right? A lot of people. In, of credit card holders in America, it's 30% of all credit card holders. Right? Have arbitrarily seen their limits reduced. If you go back 10 years, everybody was having their limits arbitrarily raised. They didn't even have to ask. So their incomes were going up. Their available credit was going up. Credit cards used to just arrive in the mail. You guys all remember that? They came in the mail. You didn't, fill, you didn't have to fill out an application. They sent you a credit card. Okay? I mean, oh, happy day. Okay? And by the way, here's how everybody reacted when they got one. See if this, this was you. Oh, look, a new credit card. Let's go out tonight and break it in. Well, I mean, you can't put a new credit card away and not use it. Right? Some people got five or six they never asked for. Kids were getting them. Dogs were getting them. Really, it made the news every once in a while. Somebody's poodle got a credit card with an $8,000 li limit on it. There's a really bad joke about that. I can't tell from the front of the room. Um, uh, uh, so credit was going up. Housing values were going up. What did everybody do with their houses? They used them as big, fat credit cards. Right? They sucked all the appreciated house out of them and went and bought shit. Some of that stuff they bought from us. You, me, everybody. Right? I, we, I had a client for a long time in the mortgage business. Some of his clients, Scott Tucker, he's one of ours, some of his clients were remortgaging their houses four times in a year. I mean, paying all the points, paying all the fees, none of that matters because it went up. There's a bunch of money there to get, and it's going to keep going up. So during that period of time, a whole lot of people in marketing and in selling thought they were really good because their incomes were going up. People were buying a lot of stuff from them. They were geniuses, right? It was just the force of all this. They weren't any good. They were like standing there with stuff and somebody gave them money and took it from them and they thought they were selling, right? So there's a whole bunch of people who've gone more than a decade who really have never had to sell.
Some people, if they kind of got in the business, if they got into business in the last 15 years, they really have never had a period of time when they had to sell at all. Other people just kind of forgot. So there's a whole lot of people who, for one reason or another, really don't know. They don't know how to sell. They don't know the fundamentals. They don't know the architecture. They don't know how to close. They either didn't, don't, never knew or they've completely forgotten and they really don't know what that's all about. And they and every business related to them is suffering dramatically, you know, because of it. Then we also had, during this period of time, the popularization of Al Gore's invention, which made a lot of people believe, right, that you shouldn't have to sell, right? There's even a level of resentment amongst a lot of people about having to sell. So in the last five years or so, if I, as I have driven clients back into selling, they or somebody getting on the road, going doing meetings, getting face-to-face -face with people, putting in phone rooms, taking inbound calls, actually talking to customers on the phone. They, not only have they been resistant to it, they have resented it. Because they weren't supposed to have to do that anymore. The magic box was supposed to be doing that for them. They thought that's what that was invented for. So there's actually a level of resentment about needing to sell. There's been over-reliance on marketing media. And so for all these reasons, you don't really see a lot of selling. And when I see it, which is rare, and it's proportionately rare, I like, I'm really happy to see it, and I tend to buy stuff I don't even want just to kind of reward the person because they actually are selling. So, you know, I wrote about a newsletter, and I'm going to talk about it again. So a few weeks ago, I... Um, I was at a, a big, one of them big home shows, you know, where there's thousands of exhibitors and the window remodelers are there and the backyard shed guys are there and the swimming pool guys are there and the miracle closet guys are there. Everybody with something for your house, you know, is there. And they've all paid a lot of money to be there. I don't know how much, but they've paid a lot of money to be there. Some of them have really big booths. Some of them have small booths. You know, as you go further back in the hall, you get to the smaller and smaller and smaller and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper booths. Back to the last hundred or so that have a card table and, you know, a little sign. And, and, and they don't even give them a chair, so they got to stand up all day. So, um, and again, by the way, if you've never worked one of those booths, I have. Uh, so, so I, I'm, I actually went... Big mistake on my part. I squeezed an hour out, and I mostly went. Now, on the way over there, I remembered three or four things that actually it would be useful for me to locate and find while I was there. But basically, I went to relax. So this is sort of my idea of relaxation. I'm going to go watch people sell, and I'm going to feel better because I was a little aggravated at the moment. I'm going to go watch some people selling, and that'll be good entertainment for me, and I'll feel better, right? So, you know. Some people, I don't know, watch golf on TV and feel better. Some people go to a strip club. Feel, I go, I want to see people sell, right? I'd have been better off going to the strip club because I would have seen more selling. Um, so, so I'm walking. I'm walking booth to booth to booth to booth, and I'm getting more depressed and more depressed at every booth and more frustrated. And even the ones I'm, like, trying to buy something from, they have stubbornly decided they are not going to sell anything today. And, and, and so they are doing every non-selling thing you can possibly do. And if I try and help them, they're not getting it, 
that I'm trying to help them. Um, so really nothing's happening, you know. Um, I, I wrote about it in a newsletter, so I won't tell you, but I mean, I liked, there was a bunch of uh, Mary Kay, I took pity on the Mary Kay people, and, and, and I took her and like I fixed her, you know, um, like quick. I mean, it's a trick, like Dave's trick. You know, I took her and I held her hand and I taught her a mantra and I fixed her. And, um, however, what I didn't fix, so now people weren't stopping, now they were stopping. People weren't letting her put glop in their hand, now they're letting her put glop in their hand. But the part I couldn't get fixed was now actually doing anything after the person smeared the glop all over and said, this is great. Because now they were still standing there looking at him, happy that they said it was great. Nobody's like saying, terrific, give me your wallet. See, nobody, <laughs> wasn't happening. So I was still, you know, depressed. So here's all these booths, some of them the owners are in them, some of them theoretically professional salespeople are in them, but they're really professional brochure distributors and stander arounders. That's what they are, because clearly that's what they think they are, because that's all they're doing. They're standing around and they're handing out brochures. The, the, really, really, the ones with really incredible initiative are stapling a card to the brochure before they hand it out there. Right? So, so, so they've mastered two functions instead of one, right? I imagine they get paid double. Be my guess. I don't know. You know. So you'd be better off having a cardboard cut out of a Walmart greeter standing there with a bucket of brochures in front of them. You wouldn't have done any worse, and you, you, know, you might have done better. So I wound up totally depressed because there's no selling going on. You know? um, we were, so Carl and I were in this highfalutin hotel in, um, in Key West not too long ago. Big resort. Right? And they're busy, but they're not like fully busy. It's spring break, but it's not the kind of place that really fills up with spring breakers in part because of the prices. So this place is not at 100% capacity in anything. Rooms, dinner, restaurants, none of that. Right? So you would think, I would think, maybe there'll be some selling going on. <laughs> no. no. No, 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 there ain't going to be any selling going on. So what do they got to sell? Well, they got restaurants, right, that... None of them were ever full the entire time we were there. They got a bunch of excursions. You know, you can go uh, 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 be drugged through the water with a parachute tied to your head and taken up in the air and dropped down in the water. You can go, you can go out and see sharks. You can fish. You can water jet ski. You can do all that stuff. So they got all that stuff to sell, right? They could, they got a spa. So they could, like, book a spa appointment. They could sell a gift card, right? So the process, in case it hasn't already occurred to you, should be check guest in, hand guest off to concierge person who sells all this stuff. Get your restaurant reservations booked. Now I'll tell you who, has this, who does this better is Disney. So you make a reservation at Disney and they try and book your reservations two and a half years in advance to go to dinner on Tuesday night, okay? They like get this, okay? These guys aren't even doing it when you're right there in front of them, okay? In fact, you kind of like gotta force them to even tell you about the restaurant. That's how bad this is. And then, the other thing they had to sell, what else they got to sell? Next vacation. That'd be the next thing they had to sell. 
So you would think, hey, we got somebody here. We got him here for three days. Somewhere in that period of time, we should choreograph, to use Sydney's sales choreography, we should choreograph a time and a place that somebody sells them their next vacation. And since we're owned by a chain, if they don't want to come here for their next vacation, we could whip out the book and book their next vacation at one of our other properties. Right? No, nothing, nothing. Furthermore, no attempt made in follow-up either. Okay? So the only thing that we have heard nothing, to my knowledge, from this place since we exited and left our money behind. I was at a clothing store not too long ago, and I call this the clothing store who mistook me for Boxcar Willie. So that's a reference a lot of you won't know. So, um, uh, so I come in, and I walk in the door of the clothing store, and there's a very nice clerk who immediately takes me all the way to the back of the clothing store to where the rack and the table is of all the crap they haven't been able to sell to anybody that they now have marked down to 70% off. So I'm looking in the mirror. Yeah, I mean, no holes. Yeah, sniffing. I mean, is there something to telegraph to this clerk that I'm a guy who's only going to buy stuff at 70% off that you couldn't sell to anybody else? Somehow, did I give that message off? I mean, I parked right in front of the store in a nice car. I mean, I had a nice jacket on. I wasn't, you know, I mean, mystery to me. But right past all the full price stuff, right past the expensive stuff, back to the cheap stuff, happens all the time. And not just to me. I've actually seen it happen to other people. They immediately default to cheapest price. At the home show, I'm talking to three different booth people. I'm talking to them about a backup generator. So when all the power goes out, you know, like on December 21st, when the world starts to end and all your power goes out, or the thundering hordes are let loose, you know, after the election and there's no food for anybody, whenever, I've decided it would be a good idea to have a generator, right? So I still have a television set. Um, and, and so there's three big booths selling these things, 33% of them, one of the booths. What do they immediately go to? I mean, I haven't, I've barely got out of my mouth the magic words of, hey, I've decided I need a backup generator at my house. Tell me about your generators. Here's what he tells me. All right, we got these three. This is the cheapest one. Well, what about that one? No, 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 this is the cheapest one. But, but, but that one looks bigger. What do I know? Generators, I don't know, squat. Uh, this is the cheapest one. Okay, tell me about the cheapest one. I give, right? Happens all the time. So here's the only way this guy knows how to sell. Cheapest thing. That's how he knows how to sell. Well, that's not selling. That isn't selling. There's no selling. <laughs> Personal banker. I meant to bring this for you, and I forgot to bring it, because it's high comedy. I'll find it, and I'll show it in a newsletter. So a few months ago, for research, because Matt Zagula, who some of you didn't know him, some of you met him on Professionals Day 
the day before. So Matt and I are doing a whole a ton of work with these high-end financial advisors okay, from all across the country. They're all seven-figure owners. They're specializing in eh, 63 to dead is their age demographic. And, and they're basically doing income for life conversions. Okay, So who's their competition? Well, one of their competition are banks, personal bankers or private bankers. Right? So okay, so I make some appointments with some private bankers. And I don't just pick them, I don't even know if they're in the phone book, I don't pick them out of the phone book. So here's how I get this guy. Right? So I call the head of donor development at the Cleveland Playhouse Square Foundation where Carl and I are in a donor circle. And I say, uh, who would you recommend because I want a private banker. And she says, I don't know for sure, I know three or four, but let me talk to the head of the Playhouse Square Foundation and get a referral from him, et cetera. So she now calls me back and says, here's the guy. And the head of the thing called him and let him know you're going to be calling. Okay? So the private banker has been alerted by the head guy at this charity that one of their donors is going to be calling looking for a private banker. Now, first of all, if you happen to be a private banker, which I'm still not sure what that means, but if you happen to be one, it would seem to me that this would really be good news. You know? I mean, it would seem to me this is like it teed up, right? We're going to hand you the basketball. We're going to lower the rim to about three feet off the ground. Uh, we're going to put you on a box so you can lean way over. And if you make the shot, you get $100, right? So when the guy finally gets back to me, keyword finally, okay? And by the way, I violated every rule to make it possible for him to get back to me. So I have left a message with my direct phone number, the days and hours I can be reached. So I've thrown my entire procedure book out because I don't want to get that in the way of anybody who might not be a very persistent private banker. Okay? So he finally gets back to me, books an appointment, okay? comes down to see me. Okay? About, I don't know, 15 minutes or so into the conversation, he has to ask a question. Here's the question. He has to ask, by the way, what do you do anyway? Now, here's why this is such a bad question. Number one, there's no good answer for it in my case. Okay? There, there isn't enough time to explain, especially to a guy this dumb, what it is that I actually do. He ain't going to get it, right? I mean... If I say I'm a marketing consultant, he's going to say, you know, my wife has a question. She's always wanted answered. How come on the shopping cart, one wheel always turns in the wrong direction? Marketing, marketing, catch up. All right, so, old joke. I mean, there's no hope. What are you going to explain to him I do? Right? Both parents died never knowing what I do. How are you going to explain this? So, so, so it's a horrible question for that reason. Second of all, you were teed up, right? This is not a question you want to have to ask unless you have no option. So how could you have been in a position not to ask that question? Well, of course, you could have asked something of the guy who called up and gave you the referral 
in the first place. I believe there's a thing these days called Google. Could have Googled. Could have Googled. You could have Facebooked. Now, in my case, you would have found the fake Facebook site. You wouldn't have found me because I don't Facebook. But most people, if he's coming to meet with a guy who's 63 years old, who 40 years ago coached the high school basketball team that almost won the championship in Ohio. They didn't even win. They're like Dave. They almost got it right. right? This is, hey, by the way, in case it didn't dawn on you, there's a reason he's here, not in Vegas in a tuxedo. Okay? Now, so, okay? Um, uh, just, just ask him to make a plane disappear. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it almost disappeared. It just wiped out the first four rows. That's all. No. Um, so, so the guy, the guy could have, so if that guy, almost won the high school championship 40 years ago. Guess what's on his Facebook site? A picture of him with the team and the second place trophy bragging about, how many of you used to watch Married with Children? The show, right? Okay, good, very good. By the way, you always learn more when there's a poll taken. If you look around at the people being polled, you learn nothing by continuing to watch me. And I promise you, during the 30 seconds or less it would have taken to look at them, I wasn't going to do anything up here so remarkable <laughs> that you would have missed something important. Okay? So almost every hand went up. Okay? Now, of the, if, you're, if you're a woman and you hated the show, raise your hand. Yeah, okay. All right, of course. Okay, so married with children. So Al Bundy, the main character, if you write like blue-collar opportunity copy, you write for Al Bundy. Okay? But if you remember Al Bundy, okay, Al Bundy only had two things going for him in his entire life, right? He had scored three touchdowns in one game in Polk High's championship game when he was in high school, which he talked about in virtually every episode, okay? The only other thing he ever had going for him was for a long time down at the bowling alley, he had the record for the most strikes in a night. And if you don't, if you don't, if you never saw that episode, you should go find it, because if you want to see a man totally crushed, and I know there are women in the room who wish to see a man totally crushed, you go, you go, you go get this episode, okay? Because he takes Peggy to the bowling alley finally one night in her nine and a half foot high heels that she's teetering around on and her tight stretch pants. She's never bowled before. Her bowling motion is throwing the ball like this down the alley and she, of course she breaks his record, okay? So now these are the only two things Al's got going for him in his life. So if he had a Facebook site and you went to it before an appointment to sell him something, what do you think you're gonna find there? The Polk High and the bowling deal until Peggy ruined it, and then you're only going to find the Polk High. Researching people is not that tough today. When I started in selling, you had to go to a library. For some, that's a large building. It's full of books. A book is a thing that looks like this. It's got glue in it. Um, you had to go to a library, and you had to start there. Right? You had to plow through who's who directories, trade journals, community newspapers. 
How would you find that? That was 40 years ago. Are you going to look at 40 years of the sports section of the local community newspaper before you go try and sell insurance to this 78-year-old guy? Now all you got to do is Facebook the guy. Google him. You Google me, there's a fair amount of crap that comes up. I've not seen it, but there's a lot of it. I'm told. Okay? There's even Wikipedia. You could Wikipedia the guy. Right? You could actually prepare so you didn't have to ask that question. Now, in this guy's defense, because he gets worse, so in this, guy's, in this guy's defense, he's not the only one who committed this error. So I met with four private bankers, four annuity salespeople, eight total. Only one, it's one out of eight, tells you what your odds are, by the way, one out of eight, had actually bothered to do any research at all. They actually had Googled me. Now, because of the problem of explaining what the hell Dan does, they didn't like have it right, okay? but they had some semblance, you know, and so they were able to say, like, we understand you, you write books about business and you race horses and you speak. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, they were at least able to do that, which is better than, oh, by the way, what do you do? Especially for somebody, a prospect that might have an ego. Now, I don't care. I have no ego. But most people have an ego. That guy that coached that team 40 years ago, not nice to laugh at that. So 40 years ago, okay, so some people laughed, some people didn't get it, some people were trying to decide, should they laugh, shouldn't they laugh? If we piss him off, will he leave? Hey, maybe he'll let us out of here early. All this was going on, right? So, but that guy, Al Bundy, see, he's got an ego about that thing from 40 years ago, and you score a lot of points by knowing that. So none of these people prepared. But this particular private banker, worse. So we have our meeting. He gives me all the information, big packet of crap, you know, 400 pages of disclosures, one page of benefits, um, some explanation of what's going to happen, how the fees work, etc. So now I, because I'm doing research, I want to test people. So I now send him a four-page letter of my concerns, my objections. Here's the reasons why this thing really doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. Okay? And so here's, like, I figured out all the fees and the costs, and basically, over a period of 10 years, you really drain 15.6% of my personal wealth, which means you got to get a yield of this, and I don't think you're going to get this. So I, I, lay, I lay all this out in a letter, and not nastily, just it is essentially a letter that says, if you can satisfactorily answer these five things, you got my money. Right? Now, the reverse of that is a close, by the way. It's called a box close. Right? If, you can, if I can get you to that point, so what's the one reason why you wouldn't do it, the two reasons why you wouldn't do it, the three? Great. Any more reasons? No. So if we satisfactorily take care of those three things, you're in, right? Yes. Good. I put you in a box, and now I answer those three things, and now you're stuck. You've got to say yes, because you pre-agreed to say yes. So I reversed the box close for him. I gave it to him. Here, I've put myself in the box. Okay? 
I've done 80% of the clothes for you because it's clear you're incompetent. So I am going to try and carry you to a satisfactory completion of this transaction, right? Clearly, this guy don't know what a box close is, or he might have recognized it, right? So how many weeks do you think go by before I get a response? Anybody want to guess? Never so far is the correct answer, okay? Never may not be the correct answer, because I plan on living for a while, and this guy was only in his 60s. And he looked reasonably healthy to me. But, so I can't swear to never, but never so far. Okay? So your guy's teed up in the beginning. I create a box close for him on the backside, and there's no selling. The cure for this, by the way, if you're a sales manager, is called a bullet. Okay? <laughs> so follow-up is at an all-time low. Two, so even good customers, even good companies. So Orvis, how many of you know who Orvis is? I bought something from Orvis, a bunch of people. You'll learn more if you look around. Um, I should just get a shirt made. You learn more if you look around at them. Um, so Orvis is a mail order company. They sell clothes, hunting, sporting casual clothes and stuff. They also fairly recently have started to sell a weird high-priced item from time to time in their catalogs. That's where I bought my 1986 Jeep. So I'm in the Orvis catalog, and so I decide to order some socks, and what the hell, I'm going to be on the phone anyway. You know how you go through a catalog, you only find one thing to buy. And then before you order, you go back and go through it again because you don't want to just order one thing. So on the second go-round, I needed some socks, and then I bought this Jeep for $39,000. Now, by the way, same call. So I ordered the socks, and I ordered the Jeep. Person on the other end, unfazed by this, by the way. Um, eh, You know, she's in India. What does she know? Socks, Jeeps, you know. So... So it's been now, I don't know, five months, four months, since I bought from their catalog a $39,000 Jeep. Oh, and two pair of socks. (laughs) Were it my catalog company, I hope to God, I would have some sort of procedure in place so somebody might actually follow up on the person who bought the $39,000 Jeep. A, like maybe to thank them. B, to see how they liked it. D, see if they wanted another one. You know, you might want a pair. They sell a $29,000 trailer. Maybe I want a trailer for my Jeep. Right? Something. Right? No. No. Right? How about lost customers? So follow up on somebody who hasn't bought in a while. No, not in my case. Maybe they're all glad to get rid of me. But really, I'm a pretty easy customer. I buy stuff. I really don't cause anybody any trouble, you know. But jeweler used to buy from all the time, haven't bought from in two years, no contact. Dry cleaners used to go to all the time, haven't been to in months, no contact. I could go down the list. So selling... It's not dead. Every once in a while you find somebody. 
But for the most part, there's not a lot of selling going on. Not a lot of selling front end, not a lot of selling back end, not a lot of selling, period. For all of the reasons that we talked about, it's just not happening. And I submit to you that if you do it, you have an enormous advantage. Then, if there isn't much selling going on, imagine how little closing is going on. So think about it in your own life. How many people in the last three months have actually made a serious attempt at selling to you? And then how many of them have really expertly, brilliantly attempted to close that sale? So whether you bought or you didn't buy, you were impressed at how this person handled the sales process and how they closed. My list is real low. Okay. The best closers I see currently are people who shouldn't be good closers. I don't even think they know what they're doing. They just happen to be enthusiastic about what it is that they're doing. And they, but like this guy, he clearly wouldn't recognize a box close if it was handed to him. And, oh, and I did ask, so he's been in the field for 23 years. So by now, this guy should have learned how to close. Okay, so why are there so few closers? One is this problem. Okay. So the core, the critical core of selling, to my mind, and now this is, this makes, this is part of the truth of Clem Stone's quote. So the critical core of selling, to my mind, um, by the way, it doesn't matter to me, but it might matter to you guys, your countdown clock up here shows 38 minutes, and I show 65 minutes, so one of us is wrong. I'm going to assume I'm right unless somebody comes up here and tells me otherwise. Um, so the core of selling, to my mind, is absolute clarity of what your job is if you are engaged in selling. Right? And most people, I think, are not really clear about what that job is. And here's some of the ways they're not clear. One is moral ambiguity. Okay? So they feel somehow that the, their right to sell and to close is limited. Okay? Somehow morally limited that they should only push this person so far and not push as far as they might be able to push. They have ambiguity about, just had a conversation about this, um, so they have ambiguity about how much they deserve to make from selling. I actually had a salesman who worked for me years ago, and he had in his head that he was a $40,000 a year guy. That's what was in his head. His dad had never made more than 40 That's a grown man, understand. But he had in his head he was a $40,000 a year guy. And it was so firmly implanted in his head that month to month to month, if, he, if, he, if it was the 31st of the month and he hadn't sold anything to make $4,000, by midnight on the last day of the month, he would manage to sell just enough to make $4,000. If he sold something on the first day of the month and made $4,000, what happened in his life in the ensuing 29 or 30 days to prevent him from making another sale was unimaginable. 
more things could happen now that he had already made his four grand. I mean, he would be hit by a bus, struck by lightning, and bitten by a bear all at the same time, and have to be hospitalized until one minute after midnight on the last day of the month, so he couldn't make any more money, so he wouldn't out earn the 4000 that he had in his head. So there's a lot of that going on in people's heads. There's Willie Lomanism, if you know Death of a Salesman, meaning that people have mixed agendas when they're in selling. So they want to be liked, and they are afraid of doing things that will cause people to dislike them, like pushing them hard to buy. There's certainly poor skills that get in the way. There's a sense of entitlement. Shouldn't have to do it. There's false beliefs about customers and customers' rights. So either they think that customers are able to make a decision on their own and that they have a right to do so. I'm going to present the facts. I'll present all the information. And you should have a right to make a decision about whether or not you're going to buy. See, these people don't understand what the job of selling is. The job of selling is to make a sale. That's what the job of selling is. And any media that is deployed as sales media, its job is to make a sale. Its job is not to respect the customer's right to make their own opinion. That's not in the job description. And you can't cash a check for that. So you cannot march in to your sales manager's office and say, I didn't sell anything this week, but I was really respectful of everybody's right to analyze information and come to their own conclusions about whether or not they should buy, so write me out a check. That's not how salespeople get paid. We get paid for one thing and one thing only, make a sale. That's our job. However we're doing it, in whatever environment we're doing it. One of the things I heard very early in my life was Zig's quote, and you know, people think of Zig mostly, who knows Zig Ziglar from his tapes and from speaking and so forth. Most people think of Zig as a very gentle, kind of benign, even spiritual fellow. Right? That's because you haven't heard early Zig. Right? You haven't heard early Zig when Zig was a hardcore sales trainer. And so I heard very early from Zig this quote when he was in the pot and pan business, going to house sell cookware, for those of you who don't know what that is. $800 set of pots and pans in the 1960s. Right? Okay. By the way, there were $800 vacuum cleaners in the 1960s. $800 sets of encyclopedia in the 1960s. So Zig's quote was, I've got their pots out in my car. They have my money in their kitchen drawer, and I ain't leaving until I make the exchange. Right? I got it. Right. You want to talk about this, the attitude? That's my money in your pocket. The minute the sales event started, however it started, I came into your room, you came into my room, you came to my television show, you came on my call, your money became my money. Now it's my job not to let you steal it from me by not buying. Mm -hmm. That's where you need to be at. Because hardcore selling is really about doing this. It is about taking away someone's free will and hijacking their behavioral system so that they will act in a way very different than they habitually and usually act, meaning decisively. Because most people do not act 
decisively. Think about what goes on in your house, alone or with friends, when it is time to decide, let's go do something today. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? No, 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 you decide. No, I decided last time. It's your turn to decide. All right, let's go out to dinner. Oh, out to dinner again. Okay, let's go out to dinner. Well, where do you want to go to dinner? I don't know. Where do you want to go to dinner? Well, what do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? Well, pick something. No, I picked something last time. You pick. All right, let's go get Italian. Oh, Italian. All right, so let's go get Italian. So where do you want to go get Italian? I don't know. Okay. This is what goes on. I, I, I'm giving you a conversation. Every one of you know this conversation. Okay. So seriously, if two, or four pe- two people or four people cannot manage to decide on what they're going to eat and where they're going to go eat, really, we're going to expect them to act decisively, confronted with a product service or proposition that they know little or nothing about, in an environment in which they are timid, scared, fearful, worried, concerned, unsure of themselves, with an opportunity to procrastinate and put it off, and we are asking them to give us money. And we think they're going to act decisively. No, they never act decisively. Decisive action is completely contrary to the behavioral system of somewhere between 80% and 99% of the population. That's not, it ain't in their hardwiring, it ain't in their software, it just... It doesn't happen. So we are going to take away their free will and get them to act in a way contrary to their habitual behavior. We are going to get them to make a quick decision about an expenditure. We are not going to get there without taking total control. We cannot trust them to decide. For all these reasons. Number one, they're incapable. They don't know how to make a decision. There's no class on that. The kids, when I, when I did questions today, Q&A for the kids, two of them went out of their way to get me in trouble. Um, one of them with a parent in the room, um, which, by the way, GKIC people, I'm not doing that again with parents in the room. Last year, the parents weren't in the room. Okay? I tell the kids the truth. And so if, the, if they ask me a question, I give them a straight answer. It's tougher to give them a straight answer with the parent in the room. Because, you know, sometimes the straight answer is, in the dark of night, pack up all your stuff. <laughs> run, run. Because you say, I can't do that with the parent in the room, right? So, by the way, if your kid was here two years ago and you haven't seen him since, And the guy who gave me 500 bucks to try and make that happen, I, I hope it worked out well. So, they're, look, they're, they're incapable of making decisions because there's no class on that. So two of these kids asked me about going to college. And they did it deliberately to get me in trouble, right? Because they knew what the answer was going to be, right? But they wouldn't ask the questions. Kids are smarter than that. It's all a big test. That's what it is. They only ask you questions they already know the answer to because they want to see if you're going to screw it up or if you're going to lie to them or if you're going to try and con them. That's what kids do. So they ask me these college questions. 
Well, so one of the things that I don't know from personal experience, because I've never gone, but I know from lots of people who have gone, and from college curriculum I've seen, okay, there's no, like, course on how to make decisions and be decisive. There certainly was no course about that in high school. Nobody's been trained in it. Nobody knows how to do it. They're incapable of making decisions. Secondly, they make very poor value judgments. Right? Most people make very poor value judgments. Right? For example, what's gone on with at least 50% of the people who have their homes upside down and in foreclosure because they borrowed all kinds of money from out of the house six million times? What did they do with the money? They, bought, they took money out of an appreciating asset. They bought depreciating assets. That's what they did. They took money out of an appreciating asset, and they bought motorcycles, boats, RVs, cocaine, which is probably the fastest depreciating asset on that particular list. Uh, and so people make very poor value judgments. Right? They're cheap. Right? So that's a problem. We can't leave it to their own devices because in many cases people will seek out and find and buy the cheapest option in the category that they can possibly find. So what's happening now at retail? What goes on? They come in, little gadget in hand, they spend a half an hour having somebody in a store explain this thing to them, and then they go in their little gadget and see if they can find it cheaper. Well, we can't trust them, because right? they aren't capable of now seeing that the one they found that is cheaper is made out of plastic, and the one you just showed them is made out of metal, and the one they just found cheaper has no warranty, and the one you just showed them has a 30-year warranty. See, they, no, they just compared the price, okay? And they're going to buy the cheapest thing, so we can't leave them to their own devices, okay? They're dumb cheap. They're not smart cheap, they're dumb cheap. They're negligent, and they procrastinate. So, 80-some-odd percent of the security systems in America when are they bought? Absolutely right. Okay? Within two to four weeks after the burglary of the home. When are over 40% of the fire alarm systems bought in America? After a home in the community is burned to the ground. Hmm? Absent that, nobody's going to do it. So I'll give you some quick facts, for example, that you won't act on. So you can prove this, you can prove to yourself how negligent you are. Okay? and how you will procrastinate, right? So how many of you at home have smoke detectors? Raise your hands nice and proud. Okay, good. You learn more looking around than you do at me, okay? Now, if Bill Driscoll's here, he'll like the next question, okay? So how many of you in your home have heat detectors? Raise your hands. More than I would have thought, but not everybody. And a bunch of somebody just said, what's a heat detector? Okay, I'm going to give you a five-minute lesson in fire safety. Are you ready? Here we go. Smoke detectors detect heat. Heat detectors detect, excuse me, smoke detectors detect smoke. Heat detectors detect heat. When you go into your hotel room tonight, look at the wall and the ceiling and you're going to find two things. You're going to find a smoke detector that looks pretty much like the smoke detector you got at home. You're also going to find a sprinkler head that when a fire breaks out, sprays water. We also have them in here. If you can see all the way to the ceiling, there's a sprinkler system all through this building. It's here by law. On the end of every one of the sprinklers is not a little miniature smoke detector. What's there is a little heat detector. 
Okay? Those are activated by rising heat, not by rising smoke. Why don't they have smoke detectors on sprinkler systems in commercial buildings? Because two-thirds of the fires produce heat faster than they produce smoke, and the whole place can burn to the ground with everybody in it before the smoke detector goes off. So you need heat detectors. Heat detectors are sold only by a few companies. They're a very simple device. They have the same thing that's on the head of every sprinkler system in every commercial building stuck on the end of a big metal coil wound up real tight inside essentially what is a metal can painted a pretty color and stuck up on the wall. And when the heat rises to a certain level, the thing pops off just like it would pop off here and activate the sprinklers. And when it pops off, the wound piece of metal inside the can is turned loose and clangs as it unwinds against the can. This is a high-tech device. <laughs> it costs about 600 bucks, by the way, but it's because it's such a high-tech advice. Okay? Now, if you do not have heat detectors in your home, understand that in two-thirds of the fires, you stand a reasonably good chance of burning to death before your smoke detector goes off. End of my five-minute lesson. Now, make a note of it and see if 30 days from now you've installed heat detectors. Okay? And if we got everybody back together and asked for a show of hands, we would find that almost everybody that doesn't have them still doesn't have them, despite the fact that I've given you information which you can go verify if you would like online. So we are all negligent. We all procrastinate. So here's the sales question that's always asked of people in the fire alarm business. If I'm in your home tonight selling fire alarms and I explain all this to you, and I show you all the documentary evidence, and I show you the burn victim paintings, and I show you the dead dog movie, and I do all that, and I let you sell me on why you shouldn't buy, can't afford, need to wait, need to think it over, need to pray on it, and don't get heat detectors, and while I go home and sleep in my bed, you burn to a crisp tonight, did I do my job? That's really what selling is all about. If you are selling something that you believe is of critical and compelling importance to the people you sell it to, then you have a moral responsibility to close the sale. If you're not selling something that you believe is of compelling importance to the people you sell it to, go find something to sell that is of compelling importance so that you can close. So we can't rely on them because they are negligent and they procrastinate. Three, they are habitually indecisive, and they are afraid. They are very afraid. Now, it's natural to think that people are not afraid, okay? because you're not particularly scary, are you? It's mysterious to you that somebody would be afraid of you. Just like me, think, why do they take me back and show me the cheap stuff? So if I tell you they're afraid of you, you're going to go up in your room, you're going to look in the mirror, you're going to see, am I scary? No, I'm not, I'm not really good looking, but I'm not scary. I'm, you know, I don't, like, I don't like come at people. I'm not 12 foot tall. I'm not green. Um, 
I deliver a good product for a good price. I deliver good service. I'm a nice guy. Uh, why would anybody be scared of you? They're scared of you because most of their experiences of buying things from salespeople have not turned out very well because of all the reasons we just talked about. They're really crappy buyers, so they're not very good at it. So their experiences are all like Charlie Brown's with Lucy every fall, pulling the football away, and then convincing them this time it'll be different. So all the ghosts of their disappointments and bad purchases past are with them. Okay? They're really afraid of themselves. It's not just that they're afraid of salespeople. They're afraid of themselves in the presence of salespeople. The trust seminar, I had a visual aid. I won't have a visual aid here. I forgot to bring my visual aid. Okay? But here's the story. I used to hang out years ago when I was a kid in this neighborhood restaurant. And I wasn't Catholic, but it was in a very Catholic neighborhood. It was right across from the Catholic church. Fridays was fish fry. So the restaurant did real well on Fridays until they changed that whole deal. And the priest used to hang out there and they played poker in the back room. So I got to know this one priest pretty good. He was pretty cool. And so poker game had just broken up. We're sitting there. I'm talking to him. And here comes, which is very rare in this neighborhood joint, here comes a shockingly startling, attractive woman marching past the little alcove where they sit and play poker to the restrooms. And she is stunning in architecture, construction, every way that you can be stunning. And she's not wearing much. So, you know, pays to advertise. So... I notice that he has swiveled around and is watching this creature. And I say, I thought you guys had a vow of celibacy. He says, we do, but it would be very dangerous to strand me on an island with only her, particularly were she aggressive. Okay. Now... That's what everybody understands about themselves in a sales environment. They know they are feckless. Therefore, they are afraid. And it's important for you to understand that they are afraid. Afraid of you, afraid of a selling situation, and afraid of themselves. Even in a situation where they want to buy something. They've gone out to find something. They've gone car shopping, furniture shopping. They've gone to the home show, whatever. They are afraid on some level. So for all these reasons, we cannot leave the sale in the hands of the buyer. We cannot do it. If we do, understand that by definition, we're not salespeople. Because a true sales professional does what? Closes the sale. That's our job description. We cannot leave it in their hands. It is entirely in our hands. So there's only four things everybody can, can do. Right? There's only four. They can do nothing. They can delay. They can buy from a direct competitor. Or they can buy an entirely different answer to their problem or desire. Those are the only four outcomes that can occur from every attempt at making a sale to anybody. They can do nothing, they can delay, they can buy from a direct competitor, 
or they can buy a different solution to their problem altogether. Those are the four possible outcomes of every sales situation, other than, of course, a closed sale where we're successful. If we're unsuccessful, this is what they did. They did one of these four things. Now, it's important to understand, just as an aside, about follow-up on unmade sales, that a substantial number of people do these two. They delay or they do nothing. They don't run out and go buy from a direct competitor. They don't go find a different solution to their need or the or desire. They either just put it off. Okay. So how many times have you gone out shopping for something or been drugged to go shopping for something? Okay. Furniture, appliance, car, new suit for friends, wedding or funeral. The funeral's a little more pressing, but there's usually less notice. Um, uh, but something like that. And you went to four, five, six places and arrived home after the entire excursion without having bought at any of them. You went to one, didn't buy. You went to another one, didn't buy. You went to a third one, didn't buy. You went to a fourth one, didn't buy. Maybe you even went to a fifth one and didn't buy. And you got home. You wasted the whole Saturday from a male standpoint anyway, you wasted the whole Saturday and you didn't get anything bought. Okay? You've all had that experience, haven't you? Now here's what every one of the salespeople thought if they had a thought at all. They thought you now did one of these two things. That's what they thought. They thought you went immediately after not buying from them, you went and bought from a direct competitor or picked a different solution to your problem or desire altogether. That's why they don't do any follow-up. Some don't do any follow-up just because they're complete idiots. Some don't do any follow-up because they're lazy. But a lot of them don't do any follow-up because their belief system is that if you didn't buy from them, by the way, they would say it that way, if you didn't buy from them. Correct language is if they didn't sell to you, see, because... If you didn't buy from them, that presumes the responsibility is on you. If I didn't sell to you, that places the responsibility on me, which is where the responsibility really lies. So that's, you know, that's important. But regardless, they, their belief system is that you went and did this. When in reality, a goodly percentage of the people, you went and did this. And so, if there was immediate and persistent follow-up, they would closed sales, they missed the first time. But almost nobody does it. So, I had a client about three months ago, I've done this more than once, driving everybody to a webinar and selling not a super expensive thing, but a moderately expensive thing for, for his market. A couple thousand dollars via this webinar. So now think of, so let me tell you just everything that's going on. So he's doing print, he's doing direct mail, he's doing pay-per-click, he's doing SEO, he's doing a whole host of things in order to drive people to this webinar, in order to sell them this $2,000 thing. Okay? The non-buyers, 
which it should come as no surprise to you, there are more non-buyers than there are buyers. The non-buyers, here's what they're getting. Three emails, which of course aren't getting there and aren't being opened if they do get there. All right. This is no longer salmon swimming upstream. This is salmon swimming up a concrete highway up the side of a mountaintop. Okay, that's, that's what that is. That's all he's doing. I said, you're doing all this to get him there to the sales event, and now you're doing this after the sales event, and that's all you're doing. Does that make sense to you? He says, of course, it makes sense to me because they're all doing this. He didn't say it that way, but that's what he meant. I said, no, they're doing this, dim bulb. So, okay, let's try really doing something. Big, long sales letter. Not a big, tough copywriting job. Transcribe webinar. Turn into sales letter. Big, long sales letter. Testimonial book. Not a tough job. Transcribe testimonials in webinar. I almost shouldn't get paid for this, should I? Yeah, I should get paid for this. So, put in FedEx envelope. Cover note says, you came to webinar. You didn't buy. I'm deeply concerned that we screwed something up. So, I have sent you a pile of additional information. Doesn't say same information. They won't know. Okay. Additional information that may be helpful to you. P.S. I'm so concerned, and I've left out some copy, but you get the idea. P.S. I'm so concerned, here's my cell phone number. You can call me personally if you want to, if you still have unanswered questions. Right? FedEx to everybody that was on the webinar who didn't buy. Would you like to know what the result was in this case? And more often than not, the result is in this neighborhood. Right? In net profit dollars, three and a half times more money made from the FedExes than from the webinar. Hardly anybody picking up the cell phone and calling. Very reassuring to be able to do it. They would have got voicemail if they called, because, of course, we really didn't give them his real cell phone number. We gave him a new cell phone number that went to a voicemail message. But nonetheless, all that money was being left on the table, because really, nobody was selling. I said, well, if that's the case, what happens if we put a salesperson, I know they're very hard to find, but a salesperson on the phone to call everybody who got the FedEx and didn't buy and sell them. The thing that was sold on the webinar or if they won't buy that, something else. Okay. See, because of these four things, we can make one of them our own. We can make that one our own. So we can narrow the number, we can reduce the number of things they may do when we don't close them from four to three. I said, what will happen if we do that? Well, that's pointless because 
They already got the pitch on the webinar. They already got the pitch in the FedEx package, right? They're on to, yeah, 20% closed by the salesperson on the phone. So all that's being left because pretty good lead generation process, pretty good marketing process, lousy sales process. Here's what everybody says. My clientele's different. They're not scared. They are decisive. They are capable of figuring things out for themselves. They're perfectly capable of doing that. They're intelligent people. They have PhDs. They're lawyers. They're good analytical thinkers. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But human behavior is human behavior is human behavior, and indecisiveness is hardwired into most human behavior. And then it's reinforced by conditioning, and so we cannot ever leave it up to them. Next topic. What should you be selling? That will seem like an odd topic. Because for most people, they think they have no choice in what they're selling. I'm in the bottled water business. The hell do you think I'm selling? Water. All right? So that's how this conversation goes in a consulting environment. Right? I say, what are you really selling? And he says, blue tape. Because I'm in the blue tape business. We make blue tape. What the hell do you think I'm selling? I'm selling blue tape. What do you think you should be selling? Blue tape, you moron. I make blue tape. What do you mean, what should I be selling? You want me selling something I don't make? How about I sell a clock? We don't make clocks, but I'll go sell clocks, you idiot. No, I sell blue tape. I make blue tape. This is how the conversation goes, right? No, no, no. I mean really, what should you be selling in order to sell the blue tape? Huh? But see, so most people think they have to sell whatever they got on the wagon. That's where everybody starts. They start with what's on the wagon. Okay? So years ago, I had a speaking engagement for, for association, National Association, ASI. It's the Advertising Specialty Institute. And so the 3D mail guys, for example, and the direct mail concierge guys who are here as exhibitors... Um, I don't know where you are, but you're both out in the exhibit hall. You find them both there. All really smart people. So the 3D mailing guys would be in that industry. The direct mail concierge guys would be in that industry. I'll bet the 3D mail guys. Are you in here, Keith, Travis? Are you in here somewhere? Are you guys ASI members? Yeah. yeah okay. So see, they would be ASI members. Okay. So Advertising Specialty Institute, all, all the companies that sell kakachkas, imprinted pens, snow scrapers, uh, little trash cans, all that stuff. Okay. They all belong to ASI. So I'm speaking at the Advertising Specialty Institute's big national convention at um, McCormick Place in Chicago. And um, breakout session. Yeah, I don't know how many breakouts, but a bunch of them. This is a long time ago. I don't do breakouts now. But um, so I don't know. There's three, 400 people in there. And this is just about the time that kind of the Internet is starting to kick their butt. 
because everybody can kind of price a snow scraper, an imprinted snow scraper. They can find it pretty easily. You can go type in snow scrapers and up comes 500 vendors. And so they're, they're all kind of traumatized. So this is what I've been told. This is the environment I'm going into. I forget the title of my talk, but it doesn't matter what the title was. I was there to sell magnetic marketing regardless, you know. But so call it whatever you want, you know. And I have walked in the room to get my money. And uh, so, but this is the environment they're in, right? And so I began my talk by explaining to them that they should get out of the business they're in. And people actually got up and walked out of the room. Um, they were, they were the, a wonderful combination of incredibly stupid, right, and easily aggravated. So they actually, I mean, there's actually people leaving. And by the way, they're leaving from the front. It ain't like they're sneaking out in the back. They're leaving from the front. Um, and afterwards, there are violent complainers about all of this. And I got one really long letter from a woman. Um, that's kind of funny, isn't it? One really long letter. Really, of course, it's like this. But anyway, one, 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 one really long letter just just calling me the most ignorant, stupid, how dare you come in here and tell us to get out of our business. And, you know, uh, uh, of course, you know, she like missed the point, this point. She was a blue tape person, you know. Um, I'm not really telling you to get out of the advertising specialty business. I'm telling you to get out of the advertising specialty business, right? Because if you sell things and the things are commoditized, then yeah, you can't fight price. So you got to put the things together in a different way, et cetera, et cetera. So what should you be selling? See, it's easier to see it in somebody else, right, than it is in yourself because you got stuff in a wagon. And so you are naturally going to think about, I got stuff in a wagon. How do I sell what I got? Right? But that's the wrong question. So what should you be selling? This is a million dollar question. Because if you figure out what you should be selling, which is not necessarily always easy to figure out, but if you figure out what you should be selling, selling gets a whole lot easier. So most people answer that question. They answer it based on what they already got on the wagon. They answer it in product and service language, right? So they will still try and describe what they should be selling in terms of the stuff or the services, or they'll use features benefits language, right? So they'll use that. They'll tell me, they'll answer the question finally by getting to the best foot forward theory of selling, which is my product has eight benefits. This is the most compelling of the eight. Let's sell that, okay? Or they will get to assumptions about the market they have, and they will want to sell towards those assumptions. Here's the right answer to the million-dollar question. What should you be selling? The answer is what your prospect most wants to buy. What your prospect is most interested in and will be most excited about buying. Well, what happens if we don't have that on our wagon? 
So we used to do this demonstration. So Tracy's in the room somewhere. So at seminars, his dad used to do this demonstration. And we were selling a $5,000 course. Get rich, success, personal development, cure warts, kind of everything course. Now, these are cassette tapes. I have a cassette tape. So for those of you who don't know what a cassette tape is, right here, looks like that. That was my first sales training tape. That's a Zig Ziglar tape, 11 keys, and closing the sale. I still have a typewritten label glued on top of the Ampex cassette. This isn't a bootleg copy. I bought this, just like this, from Zig. Okay? And by the way, same label on both sides. Okay? Written on by hand, A... B, about six of these, we'll package. That, anyway, that's a cassette tape. So the demonstration, well, there's people in the room who would know, you know what that is. When Gene Simmons spoke at the super conference, somebody brought a box full of eight-track tapes for him to autograph. I thought that was very cool. Um, uh, and there's a bunch of people in the room who don't know what an eight-track is, let alone a cassette. So here's the demonstration that we did, right? We would bring somebody up on stage and have them describe what it is that they wanted. Anything. Uh, I want to make a million dollars. I need to know how to close sales. I need to get my wife back who left me. Whatever the hell it is they want. And then at random, you'd pick a cassette tape out of the box, put it in. This is a trick Dave D would like. Okay? Hit the fast forward button and tell the person to say stop whenever they felt like staying stop. And when they said stop, you'd push play and let the thing play for a couple minutes. And the answer to what it is they wanted was magically there. Worked every time, because any answer is okay for almost any question. And they would all go, wow, and everybody would applaud, and we would do this over and over and over and over and over again. So it doesn't matter what's in your wagon, whatever's in your wagon can fulfill what they really are interested in and want most. You just have to figure out what the bridge is from one to the other. So this is a great page. This is from a sales letter. I think it may be from one of my titanium members who's in the room, or it might be one that that titanium member should have because it's from somebody substantially smarter about marketing than he is. So either I got it from him, and it turns out he's smarter than I thought he was, or it's from somebody smarter than he is, and then he should come up here and get this, which you can have it after I do the presentation. So this is from somebody who sells some sort of thing that improves your eyesight. So let me preface it before I show it to you. So I did a lot of work for two years with a company in the hearing aid business. So a hearing aid... What's it, what, what are its features? What does a hearing aid do? Right. Well, it amplifies. Good. Most hearing aids amplify sound. What else do they do? Huh? Well, they screw, they, connection. That's more benefit. They amplify sound. They screen out background noise so that you only hear the words, right? And essentially, they improve your hearing. 
Now, what are the benefits if we think features and benefits? Well, obviously, you can hear better. You can hear in a noisy restaurant. You can be to your thing. You're better connected with your family, etc. What should they, the real question, of course, is, the million dollar question is, what should they really be selling? And the answer is none of that stuff. Right? None of it. The number one reason that people over the age of 60 buy a hearing aid. Do you want to know what it is? You're close. To keep their butt out of the nursing home. Right? Because if their adult kids think they're addled, which they seem addled when they can't hear properly, then they start talking about sticking their butt in the nursing home. And by the way, they have the conversation just a few feet away because they think they're addled. Not only aren't they addled, they can hear the conversation. And they go home and say, oh shit. We better fix this. They think we're addled. Martha, are you addled? No. Harry, are you addled? No. Martha, are you addled? No. Okay, and then they go get hearing aids. That's the deal, okay? So, so, but try and get this across, okay, because they think they're selling better technology. They think they're selling a better product. They think they're selling features. They think they're selling benefits. In reality, they're selling how to keep your butt out of the nursing home before your adult children stick you in there steal your house and all your belongings. Okay? That's what they're really selling. They just don't know. Okay? So now this is an eyesight one. It's too small for you to read. I'm just going to show you. So these are all the eyesight problems that you might be sick of. Okay? Okay? One of them afraid you won't clearly see your children and grandchildren grow up, afraid of misrating your pill bottle and taking the wrong medicine, uh, feeling and looking old in front of other people. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now you can wake up your eye cells and see better like you did when you were younger. Okay? No more feeling, uh, no more wearing contact lenses, no more floaters and flashes. Okay? Now, this almost gets there. Almost gets there. Okay? There's no mention of the technology, so that's a good thing. There's no product features and benefits. That's a good thing. Okay? They did get past that. They didn't get all the way to, got it, bingo. They didn't get all the way to driver's license okay. because the only thing worse, eh, the only thing, the only, the next step backwards from being stuck in a nursing home is having the keys taken away by the adult children. Nobody wants that to happen. My grandmother used to babysit my younger brothers when I was kids, about 10 years between me and my brothers. And we lived out in a pretty rural area at this time, about half an hour from her apartment. And um, so my father and I come out one morning. We had a very long driveway out to the road, snow everywhere. We come out in the morning. Grandma's driven home sometime in the night. And here's her tire tracks. They start down the driveway, and then they veer across the field between us in the house next door, which is a few acres away. At some point, they do make a turn, and now they go down through the ditch and up onto the street and head on down the road, right? We look at each other and say, this is not good. 
So we go to her apartment. She has gotten this car, which was a um, pea green Rambler American two-door, for those of you that have any kind of frame of reference for that. She has managed to get it in the garage. God bless her. Every corner of it is smashed in. Okay? There are tree branches stuck in the doors and the windows and the headlight frame of this car. It looks like, you know, something Bill Murray would build a hide-in in Caddyshack, right? We go in and say, have any trouble drive home? Nah, no problem at all, right? They do not want the keys taken away. They don't want that driver's license taken away. You're exactly right. So what should we be selling if we're in the eyesight improvement business for old people? Driver's licenses. That's what we should be selling. Now, we don't have driver's licenses on our wagon, but yes, we do, right? So that's the million-dollar question and the million-dollar answer. And the reason a lot of people don't really do well in sales is they're selling the wrong thing. They're not selling the thing that their buyers are most interested in and want to buy most. So... There's two secrets to getting the yes. Only two. Short course in selling. There's only two things we can really work on improving. One is selling to customers ready and able to buy now. That second school of thought. And being willing and able to override their system for not buying now. Because if they have a system, that's the only system they got. They have a system for not buying. How many of you own retail or have ever worked in retail. Okay, you'll learn more if you... So what happens in every retail store when someone comes in and the clerk says, may I help you? The person says, no, just looking. Okay. Half of the time, are they in the store just looking? Some people do it for sport. I get that. Some people go to the zoo. Some people go to the mall. Right. All right. But most people went in that store, not just looking. They went looking for something to buy, but they just lied. You do it. And you should have more respect for salespeople than to do it, but you do it. We all do it. Can I help you? No, we're just looking. Why do we lie? Why are we such liars? Right? And we, most of us don't even feel guilty about it. So Carl and I are recently buying furniture. So you go in a furniture store, they're on an up system. I know they're on an up system. I understand it. The person comes up, can I help you? I don't say, yeah, we're looking for, describe what we're looking for. Could you? No, I say, no, 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 we're just looking. I just lied like I don't. Sinner, 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 sinner. Need the confession app. By the way, if ever there was a reason for me to own an iPad, that's the app. Um, why do we lie? That's our system. It's our system for not buying. And if you leave it up to their system, so here's what their system might include. 
delay, conditioned habitual response, sleep on it. Some people just say it. They don't really mean it. Some people do mean it. People of a certain age, in a certain culture, in a certain part of the country, when they say, we never make a purchase without first sleeping on it, they actually do mean it. They like have to sleep on it. They go home, it's the last thing they think about before they go to bed. They sort of put it under their head and they sleep on it. They mean that. Right? Some have to go pray about it. For some of you in the room, this will be a very foreign concept. For others of you in the room, you will get it immediately. There are people who that is their system. Before they buy a couch, after they found one they like, they go home and they ask for divine guidance about whether they should buy a couch. That's what they do. That's their system. Worst one, consult with, talk it over with somebody. They are very unlikely to consult with or talk it over with anybody who is deeply and passionately interested in helping you close a sale. Very unlikely. They would have to be talking to your spouse, your very smart kid who you're paying their way through college, right, or your sales manager. Those are the only three people they could possibly be talking to that would be advantageous to you. So when they say their system is, i got to go consult with my lawyer, my accountant, my next-door neighbor, right, etc., and typically it won't be anybody also capable of helping them make a decision, right? So who are they going to go ask advice from for, say, a financial investment decision? A broke person. Yeah, they're going to go talk to their coworker who's just as dumb and broke as they are. They're going to go talk to their brother-in-law, the butcher, who never made more than $18,000 a year in his entire life. And they're going to see what he thinks about a diversified portfolio mixing variable and fixed annuities. That's what they're going to do. And he's going to say, I don't think they're a very good idea. I read something somewhere. And they just killed your deal, right? So that's not good. Due diligence. Some people actually say to you, I got to go do due diligence. What do they mean with due diligence? They got to go comparison shop. That's what they mean. And if they comparison shop, since they're not capable of comparison shopping intelligently, what does that really mean? Yeah, price. It's exactly right. It means we're going to go see if we can find it cheaper. I'm sure Matt talked to the professionals. It's a thing, and it, mean, it means something different, like to financial advisors and doctors, than it means to Internet folks, the Google slap. So the Google slap is like if they go home from a meeting with the financial advisor and they type in annuity. Right? There's 1.6 million things that come up. So if they do their due diligence with all 1.6 million of them, we will find out what their decision was four lifetimes from now, providing they get reincarnated as an annuity buyer. If they get reincarnated as a frog, we'll never know, right? So, or they're good at price shop, they're good at trade down, they're good at negotiate. These are all their systems for not buying. So delay. So I actually want 
a generator. I do. And I got brochures from the people at the home show. One of them even has a business card staple on it. I haven't heard from anybody since. And I gave them all my contact information. And I told them all I wanted a generator. Right? I even tried to help them. You got to come out to my house, right? To measure and figure out how many CTUs, BTUs, QBUs I need, right? Oh, yeah, all right. Well, what about next week? <laughs> so I got brochures. That's what I got. Okay. So I narrowed it down to one because they were the least dumb of the three. And here's what has happened since the home show. Now, this is me. I'm a fairly decisive guy. I got the money. I want a generator. Here's what's happened. The brochure is, has moved around the house, almost as if it had legs. Okay? It's been on the kitchen counter. Then it's been on the kitchen table. Then it went down to my desk in the office. So I would make a phone call, and it went in a pile with all the other phone calls I was going to make this week. Then it didn't get called, and then it moved to the steps that go back up the house to the top of the house to the kitchen. That's where it is right now. It's on the fourth step up from the bottom. I know exactly where it is. Right? However, I haven't called anybody, and I haven't bought a generator. Right? Because my system for anything that I think is going to be unpleasant, inconvenient, annoying, frustrating, dealing with idiots, which this is going to be all those things, is to delay and procrastinate. Right? That's my system for not buying. Right? People who are going to go home and pray on it, that's their system. My personal theological hope about all that is that God's doing something more important than worrying about whether or not I'm going to buy a generator this week or Tebow's going to win a football game or, or whether Martha should go ahead with her kitchen remodeling or not. My hope is, like he's dealing with the pending nuclear holocaust in the Mideast and is a little too busy to decide whether I should buy a generator. Now, that may or may not agree with your theology. However, for a lot of people, their theology is he's got enough time to do all that stuff and he's deeply worrying about whether or not we should go ahead with our kitchen remodeling. So their system is to go pray on it. Okay? Unless you have a direct line and some sort of bribe in order to induce him to tell Martha at best it's a coin toss, right? So that system doesn't work real well for you. They're going to go consult with a deal killer. That doesn't work for you. They're going to be paralyzed with choice. That doesn't work for you. So their system is not very good for you. So the Sandler line was, right, if you don't have a system for selling, you are at the mercy of the prospect system for buying. Bad line. Close, no cigar. What Sandler should have said, the truth is, if you don't have an effective system for selling, you are at the prospects, you are at the mercy of the prospect's system for not buying. Because the prospect really doesn't have a system for buying. They only have a system for not buying. That's what they have. So let's say somebody here is going to present a resource you should have. You have a system for not buying that resource already in place before you got him. I know you do. Right? 
Your system started before you ever left house. You and spouse had a discussion about this. By the way, relax, I'm not selling anything tonight. We're done in eight minutes. I'm just using it as an example. You and your spouse had a discussion about this. Either we're not gonna buy anything this year, we're only gonna buy one thing this year. Parents have this discussion before they go to Disney. We're only gonna buy one thing today for each child. Then you can't see the kid for all the crap. Dad's a pack mule. They bought an extra thing to push the stuff around. Because okay? Disney's system of selling is better than their system for not buying. That's really the, that's what this is all about. Who's got the better system? Because you got a system. You had that conversation, right? You locked your credit cards up. Spouse took them from you. We have the number on file. Okay. Okay. You have a system for not buying. If we're to be successful, we have to have a better system for selling. Not to burn in hell forever, we have to be selling stuff that is in your best interest. But we have to have a better system for selling than your system for not buying. And the outcome of every sale really is determined by who's got the best system. Right? And understand, they got a system. Every place they go, they have a system. When they go out shopping for furniture, they actually have a system for not buying furniture. That's what they have. It's remarkable, but that's what they have. Right? When they go to Vegas, they have a system for limiting their losses. Vegas has a better system. Proof, every casino has 500 ATM machines. Right? If everybody's system for not buying was better than Vegas' system for not selling, you wouldn't see any ATM machines. So that tells you who's winning. Mm -hmm. So who's got the better system? That's the whole issue. Okay. And so when we get back together tomorrow morning, we're going to start with the eight best ways to sabotage a face-to-face -face client meeting, and we're going to delve into the best system for selling. Uh, good day, good evening, good group. Thank you very much. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you also get access to the whole enchilada with all dance courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.